0: Our sermon text is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Now, when I was in grade school, my brothers and I played a bunch of street hockey. And we had a bunch of pickup games in our neighborhood cul-de-sac. My younger brother, who was significantly younger than the rest of us, we made him play goalie every single time. And every time we tell him it's because we just didn't want him to get knocked out by all the bigger kids. Truth is, no one wanted to play goalie. And it wasn't the case that the position of goalie was actually safer because he never had the proper equipment. The only thing he had was what we had in the garage. Old, worn out, catcher's gear for baseball. My younger brother played not with hockey pads, but with knee guards that didn't even cover his ankles. He didn't have a hockey glove, but he had a mere baseball mitt that was worn out. He didn't even play with a hockey mask, but he played with a baseball mask a covering, if you call it, that was specifically designed to protect and keep out large, round baseballs. The eyes were, had zero protection from hockey pucks and from hockey sticks. And I wish I had a picture of this because it, this protection was merely a cute costume. And it did absolutely nothing to protect him. Now today we come to Ephesians chapter 6. And in our passage we find that the Apostle Paul talks about another gear, And it's not about a cute hockey outfit, but it's about something a lot more serious. It's about the armor of God. Now, perhaps you remember a time where you you were bullied and no one was there to stand up for you. Perhaps you can remember a time where you were criticized and your name was dragged through the mud and no one was there to speak in your defense and to speak up for you. And we all innately have this desire, this longing to be protected, to be guarded. We like the idea of a shield, but we find that there is a disconnect with what Paul's talking about. We don't understand his sense of urgency. The Apostle Paul says we need to strap on. We need to, to lock in. We need to suit up. We need to be fully suited right here, right now, and all the time. So what's with Paul's urgency? What's with all the urgency? Why do we need to be fully suited? Why do we need to be fully suited? Now when we come to this passage, most of us find that it is a little strange. We find it a little strange. And I think part of the reason why we find this passage to be kind of weird is because it's an ancient metaphor. When we think of battles, we think in terms of bazookas and tomahawk missiles. And so already there's a disconnect between us and our world and Paul's ancient metaphor. It's very much like how I would conv- try to convince my kids to understand that when I was growing up, in my day, how I would have to walk up to a television, turn a knob, adjust the bunny ears with you know, tinfoil wrapped around it, how I would have to get up early at a specific time in order to watch my Saturday morning cartoons. There's just a natural disconnect for him to understand. But not only is it that the illustration is outdated, I think one of the main reasons why we have this disconnect is because we don't really believe that we're at war. We don't really believe that we're at war. We don't act like it. I mean, this whole notion of spiritual warfare does not sit well with the modern, postmodern, and post postmodern thinking. But the Apostle Paul would say, that is not like the Twilight Zone, it is not some sci-fi thing, but it it is really, in fact, our reality that we live in right here and right now. That this is the reality in which we live. Whether or not we are aware, there is a war going on right now, and we are in the midst of the crossfires. The Apostle Paul would say, suit up! Put this on! Put that on! don't go without this, don't go without that, because we are under attack. Now, the Apostle Paul would say that we have an enemy, that we have an enemy, and so we need to be careful because he is an enemy that hunts us. He is malicious, and he is relentless. Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood, meaning it's not human. Our nemesis is not human, so it cannot be easily managed and so we need something more we need a different kind of armor Paul says that our enemy, the devil, he is called the god of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air the prince of darkness and our enemy, we are at war with him and his army and to be fully suited is to protect us and to be without the armor means it's game over It means there's no contest because we are severely outmatched. Do we believe this stuff? Do we actually believe this stuff? Do we believe that we're at war? Do we actually believe that there is an enemy who hunts us? The Apostle Paul would say that we need to be conscientious of this war. And if we're conscientious, if we're so aware of this war, how might we act different? How might we do things differently? First, consider seminary. Consider seminary. My wife, Kendra, and I, we went to Gordon-Conwell, and between the two of us, we have three master's degrees. Divinity, theology, church history. That's three master's degrees and five years of study between the two of us. And neither one of us has taken a course on spiritual warfare. Nor was one offered, at least to my understanding. But how can we talk about mission without talking about warfare? How can we talk about church planting and pushing against the darkness without understanding what we're up against? How can we talk about evangelism Without relying and resting and resolve to, to live in light of the blood of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. How can we do that? Now consider what the Word of God teaches us about spiritual warfare. 1 John 3:8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Acts 26:18. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So how would we do things different? Second, let's also consider the Lord's Prayer. We say the Lord's Prayer here every week. But if you're anything like me, it is too easy to just... Mouth the familiar words, deliver us from evil. How often do we take the time to understand what it is we are praying? Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from that evil one. Do we really believe that there is an evil who hunts us? Do we believe this stuff? Then why is warfare not on our radar? Why isn't that on our radar very much? One of the reasons, I think, uh, one of the answers can be found uh, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. Now, Screwtape Letters is a book compiling of 31 letters that you know, C.S. Lewis gets in the mind of the demon, you know, from a demon perspective. And he writes as Uncle Screwtape. Uncle Screwtape is an experienced demon mentoring through his letters, his nephew, Wormwood, on how to keep people in the dark and how to keep people blind from reality. In one letter, Screwtape writes this, quote, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, He therefore can't believe in you. End quote. It's a clever trick, isn't it? Because a red creature in tights that sits on a shoulder of a Tom and Jerry cartoon does not bring us to our knees. It does not bring us to our knees. And we have an enemy who hunts us. He is resolute to destroy us, and to derail us. And it is perhaps one of his most clever strategies to go about his business under the radar and undetected. But make no mistake, he is at work. He looks for every opportunity to to hunt us down. He looks for every opportunity to take an inch that we give him. He looks for a foothold for a beachhead to take over. Steve Brown asked the question, how do we recognize, how do we know if we're giving the evil one an open door? How do we recognize if we've got an open door, you know, a, a foothold, a beachhead that he can take over? So how do we recognize a vulnerable beachhead where evil might be at work? He says this, first, is there resistance and unwillingness to move towards others? Do we hold tightly to our bitterness? Are we convinced that we are the only ones who understand the situation and the only ones who see these things clearly? Do we find ourselves refusing to see things from the perspective of others? He's at work. Two, is there confusion? Is there confusion? Do we find ourselves caught like a deer in the headlights and can't seem to pinpoint the problem or or issue? He's at work. Three, are there irrational responses? Irrational responses. Do we overreact to small disagreements and refuse to work out trivial issues? He's at work. Four, are there out-of-proportion pro- out responses? Are there out-of-proportion responses? Do we blow up easily and fight over petty differences? He's at work. Five. Is there doubting God? Doubting God. Do we get paralyzed by a fear of rejection or starting something new that might fail? Do we have an unusual fear of change or, make, or making a move? Do we have difficulty trusting God to take care of us? He's at work. Six. Does the problem resist normal solutions? Does the problem resist normal solutions? Do we find ourselves unable to solve an issue? Do we find that things are needlessly complicated and that no one can seem to agree on the right approach? He's at work. Paul says that if we want to remain standing, we need to be fully suited because we have a formidable foe. Now, have you guys ever played chess with someone where no matter what you did, they always seem to be two, three steps ahead of you. You, know, you, you, take, you get an easy kill, and two, three steps later, they take out your queen, and you realize you just walked right into their trap. The Apostle Paul does not want us to be unaware of who it is that we are dealing with. And so he warns us of the, his evil schemes. He warns us of the devil's schemes. In verse 11, the word scheme is the Greek word "methodia," methodia is where we get our English word method or methodology. Meaning the evil one employs strategies. He has tactics. He creates game plans. He sets traps. Now I remember thinking when I was a kid, wouldn't it be really cool if I had to you know live thousands of years a thousand years. You know maybe nobody wants to live forever, maybe I eventually want to go, but thousand years would be a good number. And I always used to think that, you know, if I had a thousand years, man, I could master calculus. I can master chemistry. Me. And I hate those things. You know, I could become a doctor, a lawyer, and a rocket scientist. Maybe. But if I had a thousand years, I would become an expert in a lot more things. Now consider this the devil. Our enemy has been around the block for quite a while. And he's had thousands of years of studying our race. He knows what trips us up. He knows how we work. He has maliciously been observing us since infancy. He knows our stories. He knows our wounds. He knows where it hurts. And he knows where to stab us, where it'll get us. He knows what will likely trip us up. We have a formidable foe, indeed. The Bible describes him as a huge dragon, as an ancient serpent, as a roaring lion. Knowing what we're up against, Martin Luther penned these words, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And evil hunts us. It is malicious. It is relentless. So where do we get the strength to stand? Where do we get the strength to stand? It's by being fully suited in the armor that comes to us from God himself. It is to be fully suited with the armor that God gives us. Now I know that for many of us, if you're like me, you've been thinking, now, this is like a Mickey Mouse passage. It's like, it's like dress up. It seems so abstract, and so I want to spend some time looking at each piece of armor and trying to help us understand what it looks like to wear this stuff and how we can use it. So let's look at that together. First, the belt of truth. The belt of truth. The Bible was unlike any other piece. the, The belt was unlike any other piece of armor. I mean, it could, you know, it wasn't ever used for offense. It wasn't used for defense. You couldn't take it out like a whip. It didn't really protect anything. The only purpose of the belt was to tuck in your shirt. It was to keep the flowing robe out of the way for battle. That's the very first thing that the soldier did to prepare for battle. It was the very foundational piece, Seems so basic, Seems so minor, but the Apostle Paul made sure he put it in. It is the belt of truth. And meaning that the truthfulness is our starting point. The truthfulness of what Jesus has said about himself, of how God has revealed himself through scripture, of what he says about the person of Jesus, and who we are and what God requires of us. To embrace that has to be the starting point. Because you see, we have an evil one. He is the tempter. And he wants to tempt us, and he says to us this, create your own reality. Do as you please. Be your own God. Determine your own truth. After all, you only live once. And we need to counter his lies with the belt of truth. We need to say, No, no. I have been purchased by his blood, so I no longer can live my life for my own. I, I, my life is no longer mine to live. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The belt of truth. Second, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Paul tells us that we stand by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this is a righteousness that is not of our own, is not our own righteousness. It is an alien righteousness that comes from outside, and it becomes mine only when, when, I, when I put it on. And much like we put on our new self, to put on the breastplate of righteousness is to put on Christ. is to identify ourselves with Him. is to say, despite my track record, I am righteous as He is righteous. Because, you see, we have an enemy. He is known as the accuser. He loves to tell us lies. He tells us, you're no good. You blew it again. I cannot believe you did that. What if they knew God's going to punish you? He's really going to get you this time. Oh, you really did it this time. And we need to counter those lies with the breastplate of righteousness. We need to be able to say, you're right. I am no good. But Jesus was. But you're wrong because God is not punishing me. He cannot be punishing me because he has already punished Jesus. And therefore, he is faithful and righteous to forgive me and to drown out my sins in his blood. The breastplate of righteousness. Third, the shoes of readiness through the gospel of peace. The shoes of readiness through the gospel of peace. Now, shoes for the Roman soldier, uh, it, was, it was really cool. It wasn't like your sandals or Nikes. Uh, they were light. They were made for mobility. You know, you can nimble way your way through enemy territory. And most of all, what was really cool is that they had cleats. But these cleats were made out of sharp metal spikes. It provided traction in warfare, especially in a sword fight, which you needed. But also, you were, it was able to you know, debilitate people on the ground. It, was, it could be used as a weapon. And to be fitted, on, for our feet to be fitted, with the readiness through the gospel of peace means that we are able to enter into enemy territory with the gospel of peace and to spread it out. It first begins with our acknowledging and our receiving the reality, embracing the fact that in Christ that God has given us peace. Paul says that now that we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And Paul says elsewhere that In this very book, he says through the gospel, through the blood of Jesus, he has torn down the wall of hostility between each other and has given us peace. He has reconciled us to himself. He has reconciled us to each other. And God is in the business of bringing peace. And we are able to bring that very thing to others. Now, when I think of this church plant, I love the vision and the desire to create a multi-ethnic, multicultural church. Because it's a beautiful thing because it reflects the the image of the end goal. It reflects what he's doing. It reflects what the church is. That Christ has torn down these walls of hostility. It is to to seek out two contrasting neighborhoods, Jamaica Plain and Roxbury, recognizing that they're very different and yet seeking to bring those things together. And when I think about that, I often hear my enemy I hear the enemy, the discourager, and he tells me this that is so impractical. It can't be done. Reconciliation is too hard, the walls are too high. And for us to have the readiness of the gospel of peace and for our feet to be fitted means we say, no, Christ's blood has torn down those walls. And he is more committed to bringing peace on earth as it is in heaven than we are ourselves. It is to say that Christ is more concerned about reconciling Jamaica Plain and Roxbury. He's more concerned about reconciling our differences in an ethnicity or, or whatever, or social class or whatever it is, or he is more concerned about reconciling us and our division amongst each other than we are ourselves. And he's so committed that it cost him his blood. And so we need to wear the shoes of readiness to the gospel of peace. A fourth armor, the shield of faith. The shield of faith. In ancient warfare, armies would often take their arrows dipped in pitch, and they would shoot them off after lighting them with fire. And you can imagine these flaming arrows created all sorts of havoc. And the shield that Paul is thinking about it's not one of those dinky circular shields that barely covers your arm. He's talking about one of those big Roman shields that covered your entire body that was the size of a door that was able to cover and protect you. And what they did with those shields is that they covered them with hide. And they would dip the hide in water prior to battle so that it was able to extinguish the flaming arrows of their enemies. And so what Paul is saying is that take this up because you have an enemy who is a lurking lion, and he is looking for an opportunity to get you where it hurts you most. Kendra and I, if you know something about us, um, we may have shared with you our story about uh, having, trying to have kids. We're fortunate to have Karis and Judah now, but for the longest time, we had no idea if it was going to happen. Uh, it took us three and a half years of trying. Uh, after pregnancy, after pregnancy test, wondering what's going on. And it was during this time we would often hear our enemies say, God doesn't see you. God doesn't care. He is holding out. And the lurking lion hit us where it hurt most. And to put up the shield of faith against his flaming arrows is to do this, is to say, no, God cannot shortchange his kids. God cannot stop doing good for his people god did not spare his own son so it cannot be the case that he does not see me it cannot be the case that he does not care it cannot be the case that he's not good the shield of faith five the helmet of salvation the helmet of salvation the helmet protected not only the head but also the neck and shoulders and salvation the head of salvation it reflects that we have to have a firm understanding that salvation belongs to the lord that he is the one who is powerful and able to bring us from death to life, from darkness to light, from alienation to sonship. Now, you may have people in your life, friends, family, uh, that, who do not know Jesus, who have not embraced him as their Lord, and you may hear your enemy, the prince of darkness, say to you what he often says to me. What's the point? What's the use? There's no way he's going to come to faith. There's no way his heart can change. And the helmet of salvation says, the same spirit who rose Christ from the dead is the same spirit who raised us from death to life, who made us from enemies of God to friends is the same spirit who is here today, right here, right now. And because he is not neutered, we can continue to pray faithfully and to engage because salvation belongs to the Lord. Six, lastly, the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. Paul said that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Now the sword, uh, the word used is described as one of the swords that was small enough to chop up fruit but large enough to really do some damage. It it was was a uh, sword that was used in close hand-to-hand combat. And I love the fact that we don't just have armor to protect us for the defense, we actually have something for the offense. And the Apostle Paul says, he he thinks about the word of God, meaning the gospel, the sword of the spirit, meaning we as a church, when we have, as carriers of the word of God, as carriers of the gospel itself, we are God's chosen vehicle by which we are able to push against the powers of darkness that through the word of truth, through the gospel itself, we're able to detonate the lie and call out the liar that he is. That's our enemy. He's the liar. He says, you don't qualify. You're a disgrace. You will fail. And to take up the sword of the spirit, to receive it, to take it, to make it ours, is to say, Christ died for the ungodly. Not only did he die for the ungodly, he justifies the ungodly. And because there was nothing ever inherent in me to attract God's love towards me in the first place, there can never be something inherent in me to detract God's love from me. And he freely gives, and he is the one who qualifies us the sword of the Spirit. So there you have it the six pieces of armor to resist the darkness. So where do we get the strength to stand? Where do we get the strength to stand? Let's look at Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And in case we missed it, he tells us again in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil, in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. So where do we get the strength to stand? Now this passage is not an exhortation for us to cultivate our spiritual gifts as if our defense that was dependent upon our devotion. Now this passage is not a call for us to join the army of the spiritual elite as if our strength came from our own efforts and our own energy. Where does the strength come from? Where do we get the strength to stand? Does our strength come from the armor itself or does it come from the person who puts it on? Does our strength come from the armor itself or from the person who puts it on? Now let's consider Iron Man. Iron Man, he's the coolest superhero except dude, he's got like no cool superpowers really. He's just a big brain who created a cool suit. That's something, but where does his strength come from? I mean, is it not the case that his strength comes from wearing the iron suit? That is it not the iron suit that enables him to fight off and withstand his most formidable foes? Is what he has put on. I mean, Tony Stark himself is, you know, he's just nothing more than, you know, a scrawny body with a weak heart. But when he puts on the iron suit, he's something special. He gets his strength. And his strength comes from his understanding that he himself is nothing, and his suit is everything. We are strong when we draw our strength from Jesus. Paul is adamant that we need to be fully suited right here, right now, and all the time. We have an enemy who is who is out to hunt us. The enemy hunts us, and it is malicious, and it is relentless. And I myself have found that to be true. If you know a little bit of my story, I may have shared with you before, that growing up, uh, I feel like Kind of shameful to say this, but in a lot of ways, my younger brother raised me, and what I mean by that is my parents were weren 't really around uh, on, on you know there were many days for long periods of time where I might have seen them maybe one of them for twenty minutes a day and my younger brother James and I were often uh, left alone to fend for ourselves, and so it'd often be something microwavable or something you know you can create something really quick. he he make something for me. But to be denied the very thing that you need leaves you in dark places. I mean, I didn't realize how much of an effect it had on me until later on in life. Uh, but still to this very day, I hear those lies frequently. The lies I've heard, I still continue to hear, and they play like a loop like a tape recorder in my heart again and again. And this is what the lies say. You're all alone. The only one looking out for you is you. You are invisible. No one is out to help you. This is all you. You're at the end of the line. Your needs do not matter. What you do does not matter. You do not matter. And left alone, those lies can take me in very dark places. Because we have an enemy who hunts us. He is malicious. He knows exactly where to stab us, where it hurts. He is relentless. And he is resolute to bring all the fury of hell to overwhelm us with darkness so as to eclipse our faith. He is resolute to eclipse our faith. And as a moon can eclipse the sun, S-U-N, so also the power of hell seeks to eclipse the sun, S-O-N, so that we cannot see him, to keep our eyes off Jesus. And it is only when we see, when I see, that I myself am nothing, and that he is everything, that I throw myself at him and he defends me. And this is what he says. Steve, I love you. I die for you. I am with you. I'm not going anywhere. I see you. We're gonna get through this because I will remain strong. I will remain strong. We are strong when we draw our strength from Jesus. I want to end here with the words of Martin Luther. Did we, in our own strength, confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Doth ask who that may be, Christ Jesus? It is He. Lord, sabbath earth, His name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. And what's that one word? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that none of this would fall to the ground, but that Lord Holy Spirit, you would be the one to take the illustrations that don't even make sense to us and that you make them clear. That you would not just give us irrational understanding of it, but you would penetrate the deepness of our hearts. That we might be more cognizant of the fact of what's really going on here. That we are against an imminent threat, but Lord, we also want to rest and rely and bank on and trust and rejoice in your strength for us. You protect us. Thank you. Thank you. I pray now as we uh, sing another song, as we prepare for communion, we ask that you would make these things even deeper and sweeter for us that so we might rejoice in the gospel that it might make a difference today in Jesus Christ we pray amen